Good morning, Outlook family. We are so glad you chose to worship with us today. If you are new or visiting, or we just haven't yet had the privilege of meeting you, we would love for you to visit outlookchurch.org new or scan the QR code on the seat in front of you to fill out the I'm new form and let us send you a gift. And welcome to those of you joining us online. Say hello to our online hosts who would love to greet you and even pray with you throughout the service. And no matter how long you've been around Outlook, you are welcome and you are invited to join us at Starting Point. Starting Point is a gathering we have each month where you can learn more about our church, you can get connected, and you can explore what your next steps might be. We meet during the 1030 service in room 109 near the cafe in the Commons. Starting Point is happening today, or you can join us next month on October 1st. One potential next step for you could be to join a small group. If you felt a tug on your heart that you're ready to dive in a deeper relationship with fellow believers, we would love to help you get plugged in. No matter your life stage, we want to connect you with life-giving, supportive, accountable community here at Outlook. You can visit outlookchurch.org groups or scan the QR code to learn more. Each week we have an opportunity to pause and to give our offering. Even beyond fueling the ministry of this church, generously giving of our finances back to God is an act of worship and a way to declare Christ first in our lives. We want to invite you, when you're ready, to be a part of all that God is doing through Outlook. You can visit outlookchurch.org give or scan the QR code to participate in the joy of giving. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. I was thinking about the fact when I was a kid, uh, it seemed like there was a recurring theme that I would find in the shows I would watch or maybe even the books I would read. Uh, there, if there was a kid in the story, sometimes that kid would want to run away from home, right? Uh, and it would be shown in lots of different ways. Uh, sometimes a little bit more lighthearted, like they pack a sandwich, tie it in a handkerchief and put it on the end of a stick. All right, and they, they walk out of the house thinking, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna live with mom and dad anymore, right? And they get about to the end of the block and then they realize that wasn't a good idea. Sometimes it's even more dramatic, a bit more self-centered. Uh, they leave home for those kinds of reasons. Other times it could be more serious, like there's something really bad happening at home and they, they need to put some distance. But running away from home, that's kind of a theme that I remember running into. And, uh, it's, I think, a theme in our lives. I admit, though, I never did try to run away from home myself. But in a sense, we're going to see that when it comes to our relationships with God, we all have in some ways run away from home. And sometimes we still do. Sometimes those are for selfish reasons, like I don't want to do, I don't want to do life with God. And I, I think he's maybe a, a killjoy in my life. Or sometimes it's more serious. Uh, where we put distance between ourselves and God because of some religious or spiritual abuse. Uh, we've gotten bad ideas about God, and, and folks have kind of used God and God's Word as a kind of a club uh, to um, kind of bludgeon us into obedience. And there, are a lot, there could be some real reasons why we've been running away from God. But we are going to look at this uh, a little bit more this morning. We're in week two of our deep look at Jesus parable of the two lost sons, sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, parables, like the one we're in the middle of right now, 
are stories. Uh, specifically, they're allegories. One thing is like another. They are fictional tales told to reveal very non-fictional realities. And this story that we're going to be looking at is, uh, tells the story of the OG of running away from home. And we're going to focus on the son that runs away from home this morning. We're in Luke 15. We started last week here. If you grabbed a Bible from the Bible carts in the back, that's page 714. You're always welcome to grab a Bible from those carts in the back or in the commons. You write your name in the front, take it home, make it yours to keep. We're going to be in Luke 15, page 714. Starting in verse 11, uh, Jesus is telling this story, and he says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the father, divided his property between them, those two sons. Now, this is a shocking start to the story, and it sets in motion the rest of the parable. Diane Chin, professor and Bible commentator, writes about this, and she says, Jesus wastes no time in presenting an unthinkable situation in a Jewish family in which the younger son asks his living father for his share of the inheritance. Against Jewish customs, the younger son's demand is preposterous and offensive, tantamount to wishing his father dead. So Jesus knows how to tell a good story, and his, his story here opens with a dramatic beginning. Scholar Kenneth Bailey has asked people all over the Middle East what it would mean if a son were to ask for his inheritance while the father was still alive. The response is always universal shock at how unthinkable the request would be. Because in that culture, to, and the honor that was afforded to a parent, as Chin has just observed and we just read, it implies the desire that the father would drop dead. Kenneth Bailey goes on to write about this in his book, The Cross and the Prodigal. He says, the request itself is a form of mutiny. The prodigal is impatient for his father to die. Now check this out. He makes this observation. Theologically, meaning our thinking about God. Theologically, Jesus is affirming that humankind, that's us, all of us, humankind in their rebellion against God really want him dead. That we'd really rather live without God. That when we're rebelling against God, in the story, the story is revealing that what we're really wishing is that God would just go away, that God wouldn't cease to exist. Now, Bailey goes on to make this observation. A relationship in this request, in this younger son's action, a request is broken, not a law. And Chin observed earlier, it was a custom that was, that was certainly uh, broken, but he's observing not a law. The law does not specifically say that the son must wait for his father's death. The son has not broken the law. Rather, he has broken his father's heart. That tells us a little bit about what we think of when we think of sin. Often, when we hear that Bible word sin, we think it's about a breaking of a rule. But maybe if we peel that back a little bit more, we see that it's really breaking God's heart. 
Now, this kind of contempt that the younger son is showing, this insolence, would have normally been met with outrage, because it is an outrageous request. The listeners of Jesus' story here would expect the father to explode in wrath, to drive the son out, perhaps even with blows. And the reality of the situation uh, and that request would have meant great detriment to the family's economic stability and great dishonor to the family as well. I mean, this is just an unthinkable thing that happens at the beginning of the story. What's just as shocking is that the father in the story absorbs this request, does not lash back out, does not excommunicate, exile his son. He absorbs and fulfills the request. The son has broken the father's heart, and that is what sin really is, really does. It breaks The Greek word used in verse 12 for property is the word bios, actually. You know, like biology, it means life. It it literally is saying that he divided his life between them, certainly his livelihood, but perhaps so much more. Why would that word be used? Probably as a way to convey what it felt like for the father to lose his land, his family's good name and status in the presence of one of his two sons. His life is being pulled out of him by this terrible request. The father is being asked to tear his very life apart, and he does. He does. He makes the sacrifice. Now, next week, we'll talk more about this father, but this morning, it's going to be all about the younger son. And it is what this younger son does next that tells our story, too. It is the tragic tale of all humankind. Verse 13, not long after that, The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. You can almost hear the door slam as the younger son leaves now with all that he has. And it is demonstrated here. This this short little uh, verse 13 really summarizes the trifecta of human foolishness right here. This story is every prodigal story. It's our own story, and it's the story of any prodigal in our lives. We get together all we have. We set our own direction far away, and we proceed in wasting what's most valuable. So let's talk for a little bit here about why we wander and how we squander. We just sang about it, that beautiful old hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Have you ever felt it? A proneness to wander. I think if we're paying attention, life can teach us a lot about human nature, our own and others. And it's an essential education as we consider ourselves in this story, as we consider those uh, others in our lives who may be wandering at the moment in uh, this story, as we see them in this story as well. People wander or run from God because of pride, because of pain, because of pleasure, usually a combination of two or more of those. So let's dig into this for a moment. What's going on in this young son's life that reflects what goes on in our own lives? What sets us wandering? What gets us lost? How do we and why do we leave our home and our father? Well, the first thing we see here is a sense, it's a false sense, of self-sufficiency. He got together all he had. And he thought all he had was more than enough right? He accumulated what he got together from from his father and anything else that he had, and he thought, this is it. I am self-sufficient. 
I, uh, I can handle it, right? In pride, we think we know better than God. We can do better. And so we take all that we've accumulated, our accomplishments, our assets, and we say to ourselves, and what I'm talking about here can happen in any given moment of a day, right? Where we kind of just forget about God, do our own thing. Or it can also become a posture of our, of our life or a whole season of our life where we've just kind of decided to, hey, I'm going to, uh, in pride, if we're honest about it, I'm going to get together all I have and kind of just do things my way. That happens in five-minute increments, and it happens in five-month, five-year, and maybe even longer increments, where we just kind of say, hey, I got this. We feel self-confident. We feel self-sufficient. We've got together all we had, and we figure it's more than enough. And when we're in this state, we will only return to our home when we learn humility. So he gets together all he has, but this is just the beginning of the trifecta of human foolishness. The second thing is self-determination, or you might say self-direction. He set off for a distant country. Master of our own destiny, right? Captain of our own ship. This is, this is what we all dream about, all, all that we think we aim to be, and it's certainly embedded in us, uh, in our culture, that this is a virtue, right? Self-determination. Now, self-responsibility, that's a good thing, right? Taking responsibility for the things we need to take responsibility for. But self-determination, self-direction, the idea that I'm going to set the course of my life all by myself, not consulting the one who made me, knows me, loves me. We want to go our own way. We want to make our own way. And I'm talking spiritually about uh, our spiritual lives, about forming our characters, about building our lives, our relationships. We might think that we can just set off and go our own direction, but it doesn't really work, does it? And it can take us a long time to figure that out. Sometimes we set off for that distant country out of discontent, right? We believe someplace else is better, the grass is greener. Or sometimes we set off for that distant country out of pain, we're running from something, perhaps something very legitimately that hurt us. In pain, we doubt the goodness of God. We turn to other sources for our healing. Physical pain, emotional brokenness, loneliness, grief, injustice, hurt, you name it. We let the pain drive us from God instead of toward Him. We set off for a distant country. But in all the self-medicating or denial or revenge or whatever we find ourselves up to, we eventually realize that the pain's not going anywhere and these wounds are getting worse, not better. That that pain is driving us. We've kind of gotten in the car and it is at the wheel and it is, we're heading out to a very far country, far from what we want, what we need, and who we actually need to give our lives to. We're running from pain we're running from God. We return only when we're ready for real healing. So, self-sufficiency, I get together all I have. Hey, I got it. It's more than enough, and I've got this. Self-determination says uh, I get to be the master of my own destiny. But man, there's this third one, too, that we see the younger son do. Self-indulgence. He squandered his wealth on wild living. Now, that phrase, wild living, what is that referring to as we read it here in the scriptures. It's the only time uh, in the New Testament that this adverb is used. It means riotous, foolish, self, uh, shamelessly immoral, excessive, and without restraint. 
Now, its root noun is also used in a couple of other places. One is Ephesians 5, where we're instructed, don't get drunk on wine, it leads to debauchery. That's the same word in the noun form. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter warns his readers uh, that, that those who've not said yet said yes to Jesus are going to be surprised when you don't join in with them in their reckless, wild living, and they'll heap abuse on you. Those are a couple of the times uh, that this same idea, the same word is used, and the idea of it being is that you are indulging only in your own gratification, you're not thinking of others, and you're ignoring God's good and wise and healthy directives. So the younger son is indulging in the very things that were instructed to abstain from for good reasons. This also acknowledges that there are things in our world that promise pleasure, and we can be lured by them, but they will end up doing us no good in the end. He's learning that lesson. Our younger son in the parable is learning this lesson the hard way. And like any lesson, there's an easy way to learn it and a hard way to learn it. Amen? In pleasure, we deny the relevance of God. When we're making that our primary aim, when self-indulgence is our driver, we're denying that God has any relevance. We're thinking that everything that brings pleasure is outside of God. Certainly that God wouldn't be the source of any true pleasure. We believe in the promise of promiscuity. We buy into the allure of pursuing wealth. We relish the satisfaction of our own senses, whatever they may be. And we think happiness and joy are the same thing. Whereas happiness is just how we feel when circumstances are going our way. Joy is something much deeper. We convince ourselves to eat, drink, and be merry. Now we may think we're indulging or enjoying all life has to offer. That may be even what we tell ourselves. All the while missing what life is actually all about. And there's a deeper tragedy here in the younger son's action. It says that he wasted his wealth. He wasted his substance, what the father had given. I'm guessing I'm in a room with some people in it who feel like I do. I look back at certain portions of my life and I think, only if I could have them back. I wasted them, right? The younger son uh, is at a point in which he is pouring out his most vital resource. He's wasting all that he's been given. That's really the deeper tragedy. When we return... When we return to home, it's usually when, in this case, we come up empty. When we understand that our self-indulgence has really gotten us nowhere. We are drained and disappointed by life under our own management. All of this, all three of these things, is a, they are a rejection of the Father. They are a turning away. They are a slamming of the door. Maybe you can even hear at some point in your own life the echoes of that door slamming between you and God. I just want you to know this morning that you're in a place that understands exactly how you feel. You're in a safe place in which you can explore what, why you slammed that door and how you might be able to open it up again. Because I'm telling you, God would love to see that door that perhaps you look back on and realize you slammed shut. He would love to see you open it again. We've all done it to some extent, and we all have people in our lives who are doing it to greater extents, sometimes going at it with all they've got, 
running away from God. They're sad or angry or self-absorbed or just un, uh, a little dim in their understanding. Perhaps they've been handed a bad idea about God and what following God means. And when we think about these things, when we let the truth of this parable land on us, we can see and understand them better and ourselves better. And we can become more compassionate toward those in our lives that are running from God. And we can learn better how to pray for them. So a lot happens in verse 13. He gathers all he has. He sets off for a far country. And then he begins to squander everything. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. Now, we all know that in our lives, famines come, seasons come, seasons of loss, seasons of grief, seasons of thinness in which resources aren't there for us in any number of ways, financially, emotionally, relationally, you name it. A famine comes, and those types of circumstances actually tend to reveal, right, where we really are. We can feel secure and, and even have some measure of happiness or what you might even think joy while circumstances are great. But man, when circumstances get rough, who we really are and where we've really positioned ourselves in relation to the God who knows and made and loves us, that starts to become crystal clear. And the young man begins to look around and realizes this isn't the great place I thought it was. That this country doesn't hold the bounty that I thought it would. We begin to experience real need. That's what he's experiencing, a famine of truth and of grace. He has given himself, he has poured himself out, he has spent himself, he has squandered himself. Now all his accounts, self-sufficiency, self-determination, self-indulgence are coming up zero. This is where he finds himself. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, Jesus is really painting the story here of someone who is wandering and completely lost. Desperate times he's in. They're calling for desperate measures. He's hungry enough that he would eat the food of the pigs. Pigs were despicable the most unclean of animals in this culture. Even think of eating the food of pigs, to have to hang out with pigs, let alone eat the food of pigs, would utterly disgust Jesus' hearers. I had a good friend in high school who was, his family were farmers, and one of the, uh, in addition to all the other enterprises of their farm, they were pig farmers. And I remember visiting him uh, at his house one day, and it was kind of a, a lot of pig stuff was happening that day. I don't, I'm not even going to try to use the right term for whatever was happening. Pigs needed to go from one place to another. I happened to be there. He said, hey, you want to help me with this? So I'm way too close to a lot of pigs. And I'm telling you, that is just one of the grossest things that I've ever experienced. I mean, I, I could try to paint the picture, but I don't really need to. I'm just saying I understand culturally why pigs were just seen as these despicable animals. Uh, they were just filthy and smelly and, yeah, unclean, utterly unclean. And this is where Jesus puts his younger son, the character in this story, as he's reaching the end of his rope. Now, remember, let's, let's go back and remember, let's rewind to verse 1 and remember who's hearing this story, 
right? Uh, we've got some religious leaders who are pretty self-righteous. We've got people who are being described by those religious leaders as sinners, kind of outcasts, right? They're kind of uh, disturbed that Jesus likes to hang out with these outcasts. And so it, you've got to imagine, at this point in the story, the younger son makes this terrible request, grants it, squanders it all. Now he's at the end of himself, sitting in a pig pen, wishing he could eat the food of the pigs. And you've got to think that some folks over here on this side of things who are being accused of kind of being outcasts and sinners, they're kind of like, yeah, man, I've been there. Maybe not literally, I haven't been in a pig pen, but man, I've been there. The end of my rope, far from home. And they're feeling that with that younger son. But then there are others, those religious leaders over here, they, they hear this part of the story, and they just want the story to end right here. You're like, darn right, that son's getting what he deserves. And they're feeling pretty good about this. Like, I like this story so far, Jesus. This younger son is, man, he's done something terrible to that father, and he's getting exactly what he deserves. Either way, however you look at it, uh, he's bottomed out, right? Let's go back to the story. The younger son is at his bottom. He's broke, and he's broken. He is the picture of the utter and tragic futility of life apart from God. He's not self-sufficient. His self-indulgence has gotten him nowhere, and his self-determination, self-direction landed him exactly in this despicable place. So, verse 17, he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses, and he says, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare. And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. So he comes to his senses. It literally means he came to himself. He saw himself, right? Imagine that moment where he just kind of stops and everything and realizes this is not a good time anymore. <laughs> Far from it, right? And he sees himself. He sees where he is. And he gets kind of a, 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 an image, a, a revelation. He remembers how good it is at his father's house. He didn't see it before, he says, but I can see it now. Now, now for me, the, the analogy here in my own life is just how much I think we can be, uh, how much we're invited to love the church, right? Our father's house, our father's family. There's this great verse in Psalm 84 that says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. He's been dwelling in the tents of the wicked, so to speak, and now he's realizing, I would rather be a doorkeeper. I would rather be a servant in my father's house than stay where I am. And I certainly feel that toward the church. I feel like, yes, my father's house, the family that I meant to spend my life with, is the church of Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters in Jesus. How good it is to be at the table with them. Amen? Your heart's true home, all where your longings, your deepest longings, really are fulfilled as we pursue Christ together. Nothing gets truly right in our lives until we get that right. People we can do life with, as we're all pursuing God. People help us answer the question, what do I need to realize? When I, what senses do I need to come to? What's missing that I need to see? And so here's our guy. He's coming to his senses. He had satisfied or tried to satisfy so many of his senses, but now other senses, they'd been neglected, and he comes to them. He realizes just how dried up he is spiritually how much he needs 
his father's house. Yes, he's hungry for food. He's hungry for more. And so he formulates this speech. He gets together what he's about to say. This kind of reminds me uh, of just how careful and nervous I was when I got together my little speech to ask Tamara to marry me, right? And many of you can probably relate, right? You're just kind of like, okay, I want to get this exactly right. I know exactly what I want to say, and I'm going to rehearse this. I'm going to really make sure uh, I have it down because it's that important. And I, I, I picture how I felt when I was trying to rehearse that. That's how this young guy is probably feeling as he's trying to rehearse. As he's heading back home, he's rehearsing his speech about what he's going to say to his dad. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is, this is what he hopes to say. And I want you to hear the theology of his speech because central to it is this question of worthiness. He says, I'm no longer worthy. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you don't feel worthy of God's love, that you've gotten this idea that, that you've blown it so far You've gone, you've, that distant country you've traveled to is so far from God, and the things you've done and squandered have been so deep that you're not worthy of God's love, that you're kind of jiving with what, what the young son is saying here, this question of worthiness. We're not necessarily worthy of love on our own, but we are worthy of love because God has chosen to love us. So, spoiler alert, as we get farther into the story, you, this guy will find out he, he will never not be the son of his father. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father won't have any, the father won't hear it. I'm not worthy on my own, but it doesn't matter. Theologian and really great spiritual thinker Thomas Merton, he once said, quit keeping score altogether and surrender yourself with all your sinfulness to God who sees neither the score nor the scorekeeper, but only his child redeemed by Christ. God is asking me, he goes on to say, the unworthy, to forget my unworthiness and that of my brothers and dare to advance in the love which God has redeemed and renewed us all in God's likeness and to laugh, after all, at the preposterous ideas of worthiness. So as we wrap up this morning, this, this, is the, this is a great thought as we get ready for next week's sermon. I, I love this idea of daring to advance in the love of God, to actually laugh at the preposterous idea that we're worthy and just set that aside. Toss the idea of worthiness out the window. It's not helping. It's not even relevant. And it's often crippling the spiritual health and vibrancy of many people, perhaps you, feeling like you've got to become worthy before you'll ever accept that love. I'm not worthy, not as in deserving, and I never will be. Neither are you. But God has decided to love us. He's decided we are worthy of love, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. It's simply because he wants to. And now we live in that. 1 John chapter 4 says this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So in verse 20 it says, he got up and went to his father. Now this is where we wrap up today. A young man who has spent everything. A young man who has now come to his senses. A young man who is getting up 
and going to his father. <clears throat> He's moving from self-centered to self-aware. This is a movement we all can make, focused only on ourselves to now aware and headed toward the one who made us. We can always, always get up and go to our father. I'd invite you to grab your bread and cup if you did, if you, if you got one on your way in here this morning, or you can always run, run to the back and, and grab some communion. Every Sunday, every Sunday, we get up and we go to our Father. We turn to His table. We come to our senses. We remind ourselves how great it is in our Father's house. We come to take the bread, which represents His body, broken for us, and the love that he has for us. Let's remember him and take and eat it together. And when we come to this meal, this moment, we are acknowledging, just as a younger son eventually acknowledged, this world leaves us empty. But the Father, the Father, will fill us. And we know it. And we thank him for it. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do fill us, that it is great in your house, and that your table is overflowing with truth and grace and acceptance and love. Lord, it's not hard to see ourselves in aspects of the younger son's actions and choices. Sometimes you must feel like we just would want you dead, that we would, we, we act at, as though life would just be better without you in the way. Forgive us. When we think we're self-sufficient, when we decide to be uh, setting our own direction, when we indulge ourselves in ways that kid ourselves into thinking that real pleasure doesn't come from you, but must come from someplace else, we're wandering. And Lord, we confess, we are prone to wander. So Lord, we give ourselves to you. Here we are. Our hearts, our lives, they belong to you. And we say so again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.